Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is supported by Heartbeat Opera. If you're a fan of Shakespeare, opera, or drag queens, or all of the above, then you don't want to miss the Heartbeat Opera's upcoming show. The indie opera company called Bold and Vivid by the New York Times returns for their annual Halloween drag extravaganza. This year's theme, All the World's a Drag, Shakespeare in Love with Opera. Join Heartbeat Opera for a fun night of eye-popping Elizabethan fashion, dazzling musical performances, and Halloween revelries. The show returns for just two nights, October 30th and 31st, at the National Sawdust in Brooklyn. Tickets on sale now at heartbeatopera.org. Someone's wedding day Someone slips away Someone fights to stay In the game Someone's tragedy Someone's ecstasy Will we ever be The same again So roll the dice Everybody gets the chance To run away Or to stay You and I We've been through so much such beautiful pain It's deep in our veins And I'm in all the way Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 22nd, 2017. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist who is chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is the theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. We have a special guest with us today uh, in May or maybe early June at Speakeasy Stage in Boston. I was lucky enough to see an excellent production of The Bridges of Madison County, and it starred Jennifer Ellis as Francesca and Christian Smith as Robert, and they were both really great in it. And uh, just recently, a press release came over my desk that Christian is going to be making his Carnegie Hall debut at Wild Recital Hall in a program titled Songs We Know, uh, reinterpreting the art songs, quote-unquote, of the Beatles, Adele, John Legend, John Mayer, uh, Jason Mraz, Ed Sheeran, etc., etc. And then also... Uh, Christian has a new album coming out called All the Way uh, of songs that he co-wrote and it turns out I did not know this that he just recently played Gaston in a national tour of Beauty and the Beast so we thought we would have him on and talk about all of those things and find out uh, what's in store at Carnegie and and in the album Uh, so welcome Christian Thank you, Michael and James. It's great to be here. Christian, tell us about extensive music background. You have crossed a number of genres from <laughs> classical to Broadway to uh, to popular music and things like that. Uh, what's your history in uh, music? Are you have a musical family? Uh, no, actually, I'm the first one in my family to be a musician. Uh, my mom is an artist, and uh, my dad used to do drum circles, so that is semi-musical. But... Um, yeah, my mom was a visual artist, and she got me my first guitar and my first piano lessons, and uh, I just kind of I took to it because I'd been banging on pots and pans in the living room since I was two, so she figured I might as well switch to something a little bit uh, maybe less uh, distracting for <laughs> for life. But I just read Phil Collins' biography, and he was doing the same thing at the same age, so that's, uh, I, feel, I felt kind of cool to see that. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been... Um, I started off my first uh, band, my first real live performance was with uh, a punk rock band in seventh grade. A couple of my buddies and I formed and we played at the school talent show and then we kept going through through the beginning of high school and then I branched off and did a little solo John Mary kind of thing with guitar and acoustic and uh, then I went to went to school for, for singing. I thought if I could if I could sing opera I could sing anything and uh, 
So my, my goal is always to to uh, sing popular music for people and uh, and uh, just get my my skills up. You went to some of the uh, some of the best schools in the Midwest: uh, Indiana University, uh, University of uh, Wisconsin Madison. Um, yeah. Are you from that area? Yeah, I was born in Milwaukee and raised in the Fox Valley, Wisconsin. So um, I was I grew up about forty five minutes south of Green Bay. Okay, nice warm area. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I went to, to yeah, exactly, real cold. And I, you know, so being in New York, it feels like the winters are a little mild for me. I'd like a little bit more snow sometimes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a great great place to grow up. You went to uh, Boston University Opera Institute, where mm-hmm. you did uh, uh, Sondheim's Assassins uh, as Booth. That's right. Uh, so yeah. was that your introduction to Sondheim, or had you been familiar before? Yeah, no, that was my first uh, foray into musical theater on stage, aside from in high school. Um, and it was great. I grew a full mustache for the show, and um, Jim Pitoza directed up there. He was a great, great influence for us all who with him and then um, made some good friends on the show and got a free ride on the Boston train because of, because the conductor also had a mustache and I forgot my MTA pass. And he just, he was like, <laughs> <"Go ahead." laughs> so, so it was pretty fun. Uh, you have your concert coming up at Carnegie Hall. Tell us a little bit about that and how it came to be. Yeah. So I've always wanted to bring, kind of the worlds of classical music and the worlds of pop together because I've sort of straddled them both and been very interested in the both done a lot of done a lot of study of classical music you know for through my three degrees uh, they're all in opera singing and so I did a lot I learned a lot of repertoire I learned a lot about the, the art form and the history that goes into it and I've always wanted to share that with people because I think it's very meaningful and and has the the form has great stories they're they're very relevant today we can learn a lot from them but i think they're hard for people to access if they're not familiar with some of the other details and or if they don't speak another language you know the translation can be an issue and the uh and the the historical background and just not knowing stories and, and sometimes even the length of the piece can take people away from um uh, buying tickets i think and so what I want to do is is bring people to the style of singing because oftentimes people will say, "Oh, yeah, I just I can't really relate to that singing style." You know, it's just I don't really understand it. It's just so big and overblown, and it doesn't feel real to me. So I want to do a concert. I've had this concept in mind for a while now to do a concert where we do all songs that people know, so that they don't have to think about any historical context or any translation or anything like that. They know the songs, but they just hear it sung like an opera singer, so that they can just get used to that style of singing and tell for themselves whether they still think it's unrelatable or or whether perhaps there's a little bit of beauty to it. So that's what we're going to do. It's going to be I'm going to be singing uh, my own arrangements of. Ed Sheeran, John Mayer, Maroon 5, and more with just a piano player and myself. My pianist is Casey Robards. She's a coach of mine from Indiana University, and I couldn't think of a better person to be up there on stage with me. She's uh, She really understands the project because she also plays some jazz in addition to being a, a classical piano accompanist. And that's going to be uh, Saturday, November 18th in the Wild Recital Hall. Right. Uh, and we'll have yeah. links to that in the uh, show notes as well. So uh, you. you transition into uh, an album release called All the Way. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no relation Which, to the Broadway show All the Way, huh? Or or to <laughs> apparently right. to the Sammy Khan, James Van Usen song. This is a, this is <laughs> right. a, a, new, a new song that you co-wrote, and that's the title of the album. Is that true? That's right. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's right. Um, so this is one. This is on the pop side of the of the spectrum of what I do, and this was written, co-written with my now good friend Chris Eaton and his good friend Don Electra, and we um, got together in February at Chris's house in the UK and in the countryside and wrote a couple songs, and then 
came back and recorded them in Nashville. And it's always been a, a, a dream of mine to put out a pop album. And uh, like I said, when I started college, I wanted to be John Mayer. Um, and uh, so that, that's, this is now kind of the, the initial step towards you know, doing some songs that will hopefully go well with what I have already been doing. So I think the, the songs are, that we've written really try to have a theatrical bent to them. They're, they're meaningful songs as well. And they've got, I think, um, larger melodies that are um, a bit more grand. And I think that hopefully will appeal to you know, people who know where I've come from and what I've done. So I know that there can be controversy on both sides of the, of the spectrum. You know, pop people tend to not like opera singing and opera people <laughs> to be very, very specific about what they like. So I'm, um, I know it's a, it's a, it's a unique step, but I, it's something that I've been interested in doing for a long time. And we're trying to, to kind of bridge the gap between the two worlds. Not that all the way is in any way operatic because we really wanted it to be just a straight pop song. Um, because I don't know that anybody has actually really sung legitimate opera and legitimate pop. Um, I know there have been people who cross over and I think Renee Fleming's pop album was, was wonderful, but I don't know that she really changed her style of singing mm. that much. And so that's what I've been trying to, oh, to work on with, with my new voice coach, Don so, Lawrence, who is kind of, he coaches a very, a number of very large pop music stars. And uh, he, so we've been working on the pop sound a lot. Somebody lately. who, uh, somebody who straddles both uh, musical theater and pop and uh, to some extent, uh, you know, a little bit of a opera flair to it is Jason Robert Brown. And you had a chance to star in one of his shows, yeah. uh, Bridges of Madison County. Uh, were you familiar right. with Bridges before you got cast in it? Oh yeah. That when, when they asked me to do it, I was so excited because the music is just, I, I mean, everybody, everybody loves it. And for incredibly good reason, it's, it's a, magical score what he's done with it is just really pull your heartstrings out and it's it's it, it, i really jumped at the chance i couldn't wait to to dig into robert and do it because it was also really good drama i think you know the 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 requirements for the actor are are big in addition to the singing requirements so i i was very excited to take it on and uh, I thought it was a great company to be working with. Speakeasy really treated me well, and they're a really, really nice family. Um, so, and aside from everything, it was it was so wonderful for for me to see it in such an intimate space with no no sound app, sound amplification, just natural sound from the beautiful voices uh, you and Jennifer Ellis and the rest of the company. That was quite an experience. Thank you. Thanks. I thought they did a great job of really stripping it down to to its core and letting the letting the story speak. Yes, in in many ways, I, I think it worked better than Broadway, be, just because of the intimacy of the space itself, and it was very well directed. Yeah, Bevan did great. All right, so uh, Christian, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. You have a concert coming up at Carnegie Hall Saturday, November 18th at 8 p.m. in the Wild Recital Hall, and we'll have links to that in the show notes, as well as your uh, album. I think, is the album already released all the way, or is it coming up and release? The single has been released, and there's a music video on Playbill.com that just came out on Friday, Um, so all the way is available on all digital platforms. You can go listen, go download anywhere, anywhere you uh, you would listen. And uh, we'll be putting the video on YouTube sometime this week. But the album will be coming out later, later in the year, um, and we'll be doing a few more single releases before then as well. Great. So I'm very excited for that. Listeners can catch up with Christian Smith is uh, christiansmith.com, and that's with two A's, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-A-N, Smith. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes in case you misspell it and can't find it. Uh, (laughs) Christian, thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday morning on Broadway Radio. It's good to speak with you. Thank you guys so much. It was great to talk with you.
right. On uh, last week's podcast, uh, Peter and Jenna talked about Time of the Conways, and uh, Michael and I have seen it. And uh, Michael, why don't you tell us what you thought about Time of the Conways? I really enjoyed the production, and I was very glad that the roundabout uh, staged it, uh, uh, gave us this production here on Broadway. Uh, it, an extraordinary play by J.B. Priestley, also known for an Inspector Calls and uh, and other plays. And this, uh, I really, really enjoyed the way that he plays with time in this play. We, uh, The first act we see... Um, uh, very shortly following the end of World War One, this British family uh, gathering. Uh, one son has just come home from the war, and they all uh, they seem uh, very, very happy. There, there's a lot of uh, festivity because it's the 21st birthday of one of the daughters, and they're celebrating. And it, it, the general mood just seems extremely happy for the family as well as by extension for England uh, and and hopefully the world because as um, some people remember uh, incredible as it may sound World War One was at one point known as the war to end all wars um, if only that had been the case but that's not true uh, so we see these Conways they're 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 well to do Brits uh, in 1919 and they're all very happy and and uh, seems like things are going to be going really well for them and the country and the world but then. Um, the second scene of the play flashes forward to 1937, uh, just in the uh, in the years immediately preceding uh, another war that if that is even worse, if possible. Uh, of course, they don't know that for sure yet, but it, the signs seem definitely pointing to it. And and by extension, uh, things are have begun to go very badly for the Conways themselves uh, in terms of their personal relationships, financial situation, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so we see that what we see what they've come to in 1937 um but then the third scene of the play um which is performed after the intermission at uh, at the roundabout production uh brings us back to the same evening in 1919 immediately following what we saw at the at the end of the first scene and and then we begin to um uh, see uh, the seeds of the downfall of the Conways, uh, and I guess by extension, England and the world, just in um, poor decisions that are made and uh, alliances that are formed that should not be and things of that sort. Um, so the the ability to of a dramatist to go forward and backward in time like that that is uh, I think that's uh, can be an incredibly useful and very very powerful tool and it certainly is in the case of this play I thought the production overall was excellent uh, I very much enjoyed Elizabeth McGovern uh, as the uh, as the matriarch of the family and the cast uh, uh, also included includes Anna Camp, Anna Barishnikov, Gabriel Ebert, Brooke Bloom, um, Charlotte Parry uh, has a major role of, of, of Kay, the, the young, the uh, daughter whose 21st birthday is being celebrated. And then Kara uh, Ricketts, Alfredo Narciso, Stephen Boyer in a really, really excellent powerful turn as I, I i guess you would say the villain of the piece and matthew james thomas uh directed by rebecca teichman teichman i really should learn how to pronounce that um so i i think uh after i saw the show and reviewed it i, I read some of the other reviews and i think that overall the other ones were a, a lot more negative and had more reservations than mine so i um for whatever that's worth but i really enjoyed it and i really think it's uh the kind of thing that the roundabout should be doing and I'm, i was very glad that they that they brought it to us at the american airlines theater so i saw it uh last sunday after we re had recorded and having listened to peter and jenna's take upon it uh i very much agree with with them uh i i wholeheartedly enjoyed this production and i think that and I would like both of you to weigh in on this, is that 
I think that the success and failure of this type of a production could really depend upon uh, Rebecca Tashman and that when people don't really grasp what a director does for a production, uh, they're not just telling people to stand here and stand there and act uh, <laughs> that uh, I think that this production could have got really gone south with uh, with poor direction, even having all the same elements in there, uh, minus that director. And I think that she, uh, Rebecca Tashman should be applauded for this uh, this success of Time of the Conways. I, I really enjoyed it, um, and also wanted to uh, plug uh, a new podcast that we're doing on Broadway Radio called uh, Ask Me Broadway's Ask Me Anything. Caitlin Milligan interviewed. Uh, Matthew James Thomas of Time in the Conways, and it was an interesting interview as well. So if you're a fan of his, get over and take a listen to that as well. But um, I really enjoyed Time in the Conways and uh, and exactly what Michael just said. This is what Roundabout Theater should be doing, and they're doing it really, really well. So uh, next up, Peter, you got to see a play called Strange Interlude. Tell us about that. Was it strange? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> may I again say it's the damnedest thing I ever saw, which is something I've been saying in recent weeks. Uh, but this is really a triumph. Now, I will say the two of my favorite people uh, in the world who post on all that chat said, do not go to this. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they were very adamant about this. Of course, one of the reasons that one gave was that uh, the seating is not so hot. It really it isn't. It's simply chairs. Uh, stuck together, um, no armrest, none of that. And that's pretty hard to take when you consider we're talking about a show that begins at 5 o'clock in the evening, has an intermission around 7.30 maybe, and then you come back and you're there till 10.45. So it, it it is arduous to sit there. But, you know, I think it's worth it to see what David Greenspan is doing because he is playing all 10 roles of uh, Strange Interlude, the very famous and very much acclaimed 1928 play that Eugene O'Neill, no less than Eugene O'Neill, did, and uh, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. Now, what makes it even more difficult is the fact that Strange Interlude was a play where occasionally the characters would look out to the audience and reveal their inner thoughts. So what you're essentially dealing with is, in a way, of manner of speaking, 20 characters, um, because you have to figure out when David Greenspan is playing Nina and when he's playing Nina talking to us, as well as the other nine characters in the show. So it could be very confusing. Now, I'm going to make a recommendation here, and that is the fact that before I went, I watched the movie version. And the movie version, by the way, is one hour and 49 minutes. So needless to say, it's been cut. Okay. However, here's what makes it interesting. You could read the play. Of course you could. And, um, and that would be fine, too. I do recommend that you do one or the other before you go to see this. And perhaps if you even have the LPs of the production that was done in 1963 on Broadway, that might help you, too. But the reason I'm saying see the movie as opposed to read the play or listen to the records is that the play omits a good deal, of course, and what it omits is the more, um, well, unsavory features of the of the uh, play. And you can understand that Hollywood um, uh, was a little gun shy even before the Hayes Code to um, to deal with issues such as abortion, which does come up in Strange Interlude. So, and that will give you enough background to be able to understand what's going on when David Greenspan is playing this character, that character, the other character. So uh, um, I do think if you don't do any homework in advance, you are going to be terribly lost. But I also believe if you do do this homework in advance, what's going to happen is that very quickly you are going to catch on to who's who and what's what. And 
it was amazing to me that I was able to really understand who these characters were um, just from his demeanor. He um, he spins around a lot. Of course, when he has conversations, um, two people having a conversation, he spins around to indicate where each person was. And it did remind me of that Woody Allen movie where he's uh, playing both the prosecuting attorney and the witness on the witness stand where he went back and forth uh, between sitting down and jumping out in front and pointing his finger at the, at the chair. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, that is true. And it is um, – it, it could be considered a stunt, but good Lord, has anybody taken on so difficult a task as to memorize a play of this length and perform it? And there was never a moment, never a second where you felt, oh, my God, he doesn't remember the next line. Never. He really knows this play cold, and you can tell that he really enjoys doing it as well. You know, we talk all the time about the standing ovation uh, being overused and all that. But I was definitely interested in getting up on my feet the moment it ended to uh, to applaud him tremendously, because really, what a task to take on. So watch the movie, which is interesting for its own sake. What we're talking about is a woman, Nina, who lost her husband, uh, I think her lover, actually, in the in the war. And um, and she's never going to get over it. Um, the marriage she does make with Sam is one that um, she just makes. Uh, it's something to do, really. She'll never love him. And the problem is a man who she does love shows up later. And, um, well, what's going to happen there? It's more complicated than that, though, because as it turns out, Sam's uh, family has uh, real mental problems. And uh, should they have a child? Because if they have have a child, well, you know, he could have some of those problems because there's bad blood in this family. Well, on the other hand, um, Nina desperately wants a child. And then, as I say, she meets the second man of her dreams, and maybe she should have the child with him and not tell her husband that it's not his child. So these are the issues that crop up in strange, strange interlude. And uh, <laughs> you do get an interlude of 35 minutes for dinner. They tell you you should eat on the premises, which costs 17 dollars and as um one of those all that chatters said uh is akin to an airline meal i didn't do it because even though they said you have no time there is a pizza place down the street which is very <laughs> good by the way um and um you will have enough time to go in there and grab a quick slice or two uh and come back and you won't you won't have missed um anything at all there's a lot of moving around by the way because uh, there are different sets um, and, uh, so you go into one room, the first room you go into, um, there are piles of books. There are 24, uh, piles of books, about 30 to a pile. There are, you know, 720 books on that stage at least. Um, and, uh, and obviously it represents a library, um, not a public library, but a library in a home. And then you switch to uh, uh, another room and uh, then you come back to the other room and then eventually you go to another room altogether. So there's a bit of walking involved. Uh, keep that in mind. Um, not a lot, not nearly as much as um, some other shows that do this type of thing. But uh, be aware that that does happen. And um, But altogether, I, I, I really believe this is going to be a show that I will never forget as long as I live. So... Um, so I do recommend it. I do. Well, I have to say uh, I have not seen it, but it it, it sounds like an, a truly incredible achievement on yeah. David Greenspan's part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But watch the movie. Uh, question, <laughs> question on that, uh, Peter. I don't think you said how uh, do, um, are the inner thoughts included in the movie or omitted, and if they are included, how do they do it? Is it voiceovers or? Yep, voiceovers. That's ah. exactly how it's done. Ah. So, um, yeah, they make no bones about that whatsoever. Uh, and it, it's good that um, that we do have this movie available to us. And um, I do believe you can find it on YouTube. And um, it, it's it's a good movie for its own sake. And Clark Gable, by the way, plays the second man in her life. <laughs> and um, and he, he it, this is really even, you know, five years before he... Uh, did Gone with the Wind. So uh, he doesn't even have a mustache for most of it, of course. We do see, t not unlike Time for the Conways, we do see time pass. Um, we do see that little boy grow up. 
um, the child they have. He grows up and um, he he's <laughs> he may very well break his mother's heart, though he has every right to do what he has to do. I'm being purposely enigmatic because I want you to go. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, Transport Group's uh, Strange Interlude, directed by Jack Cummings III. And uh, it's running through November 18th, and we'll have links to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you got over to Keen Company's uh, presentation of Lonely Planet on Theater Row, so tell us about that. Yes, this is their 25th anniversary production of a play by Stephen Dietz, Lonely Planet, which uh, I had not ever seen before. It's a it's a beautiful play. It's called A Story of Friendship in a Time of Crisis, uh, <laughs> reference to the AIDS crisis. And... Um, it's a two-character play. Jody, uh, played by Arnie Burton, is this fellow who owns a map store, <laughs> uh, which, you know, uh, is a metaphor in itself. And then his friend Carl, uh, played by Matt McGrath, who is a, a very, uh, very um, flamboyant fellow who seems to spend a lot of time, a lot of time in the map store. And this play is filled with uh, – what's so interesting about it is it's – got a lot of metaphors in it. Um, the, the maps themselves are metaphors and, and uh, the uh, chairs, empty chairs figure heavily in, into the action. Um, things, uh, issues about uh, Jody not finding it difficult, not being able to leave uh, the map store in order to go be tested for HIV. Uh, so there are all of these things that are metaphors, but uh, but a, a great many of them are also discussed by the characters. Oh, and another uh, uh, example is that Jody has recurring. Well, he has dreams that are are um, different in detail, but I guess they they follow the same general theme of him being mistaken for someone who is able to help uh, in a certain situation. Uh, 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 for example, he uh, one point is uh, mistaken for a fireman, uh, and he is not, and so he keeps telling people, I can't help, I can't help. But uh, I, I, this whole feeling of helplessness, which obviously relates very much to the AIDS uh, to the AIDS crisis. Um, another thing I noticed about this play is that um, the two characters refer to each other by their names very, very frequently. And I think that must have been done absolutely on purpose by the playwright Stephen Dietz, uh, sort of a... Uh, Kind of well, we've lost so many people, uh, but we're still here, and 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 you are Jody, and I am Carl, and I I I, I really noticed that, and uh, it took me a while to notice it, but then I thought I'll bet that's exactly what he was up to here. Um, so I was going to uh, see this play no matter what because it has two of my favorite actors on the planet, Arnie Burton, uh, who was most recently. Uh, so brilliant in the government inspector is Jody and Matt McGrath, um, whose credits include his award-winning role in the legend of Georgia McBride was Carl. Uh, but both of these guys work constantly and, and there's no reason why they shouldn't. They are absolutely brilliant. And under Jonathan Silverstein's direction, I thought that lonely planet was a very, very moving experience. Uh, and it should absolutely be seen for the acting and for the text and for the production. I, um, I, I did think, uh, interestingly, that I suppose this was a di directorial decision that sometimes uh, it, it felt like that the actors were purposely avoiding uh, deep emotion. Uh, I guess they didn't want to make it seemed too weepy. And I think maybe occasionally, uh, especially towards the end that they maybe, um, could have given into that a little bit more. That would have been in my, uh, my suggestion, uh, if I, if I were directing it, but other than that, it, uh, I, I, I it, it's the keen company, which has a, 
extremely good track record as far as I'm concerned in terms of the quality of their productions. And I think this one uh, is, is right up there with the best of them. So that is uh, Lonely Planet at uh, the Clerman Theater at Theater Row on 42nd Street. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you got up to Lincoln Center to the Claire Tao Theater uh, to see After the Blast. So tell us about that. Um, <laughs> well, uh, this was described as a dystopian play, and yes, indeed, it <laughs> is. Um, and usually when you see a dystopian play, what happens is you go in and you see this barren, horrifying <laughs> landscape of uh, burnt trees and uh, dirt and all this kind of stuff. And that's what I fully expected to see when I went to After the Blast. Um, way upstairs at uh, the Clay, uh, Clear Tau Theater. However, <laughs> I was really shocked to go in there and see this immaculate white room. And the reason there's an immaculate white room is, yes, there has been a nuclear holocaust, so now everybody has to live underground. It's going to take a number of years, and the number of years, by the way, is up for dispute during hmm. the entire play. It's going to take a number of years before anybody goes um, uh, upstairs uh, to the real world again. So everybody's living underneath this world. And um, one of the problems here is that um, people really don't have the right to uh, reproduce. You have to get a license for this to happen. Otherwise, you, um, you're breaking the law. In fact, the law now is referred to not as much as the law as sins that you're committing. So... Well, the problem is that Patrick and Anna want to have a kid, uh, but it isn't happening. So Patrick thinks it's a good idea to bring in – think of R2-D2 because they're thinking of that as well. <laughs> I mean he looks very much like R2-D2, a little – sort of wears clothes, but – um, has an R2-D2 uh, demeanor, in fact, to the point at which this is actually referred to in the play, and that's why they call him Arthur um, after R2-D2. So – the point is maybe she'll be able to be distracted from having a child by having this uh, stand-in, so to speak, for a child. And her job is to teach um, everything she knows to this being so that someday it will be able to go out into the real world and help somebody who really needs it. Well, it's a little predictable as to what's going to happen. She really gets emotionally involved with this being and um, – my favorite moment of the play by far is after she's really bonded with this machine and they really have a genuine relationship and Christian Milioti is fabulous at really showing us that she believes this is a person. It's it's an amazing thing to watch her relate to this machine as a person. It talks, by the way. It's not like R2-D2 who makes those strange sounds. Um, it talks. It learns to talk. And um, they certainly have conversations. But my favorite moment comes when she uh, expresses some displayed hostility uh, to it. And she, get away from me. I don't want to see you. And the poor thing moves <laughs> over to the side of the stage with his back to her, you know, and after a while she feels bad. She's hurt its feelings. She says, Arthur, Arthur, Artie, Artie. And the thing turns around and says, what? You know, the way we've had so many arguments with our loved ones, you know, where they're not speaking to us, and then they turn around and say, what? You know, <laughs> so it's it's really quite a thing. Um, at the end, it could really break your heart what happens. And um, it's it's very strong. And the, the, the really most amazing thing about it uh, is the fact that it was written by Zoe Kazan. Now, Zoe Kazan is somebody we've known for a while as an actress, uh, starting with um, a very important role in the prime of Miss Jean Brody off-Broadway. Uh, but, you know, there she was, um, appearing in Angels in America um, off-Broadway, doing a spectacular role there. Um, and, you know, we've seen her on Broadway, too, so... Who knew that she had this in her? But she does. And it's really quite a wonderful experience, um, uh, even if it may be a little threatening to us in this time when, who knows, in a few weeks we all might be living underground. But that's another story. Michael, you saw it too, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I. I. I it is one of the best plays, new plays that I've seen recently. I, I thought that 
Zoe. I suppose it's Zoe because she is doesn't it? have an. Well, I mean, she doesn't have an umlaut over the e, so I, 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 I never. That's know. An, another thing I should check out along with Rebecca. I Tachman know. Type. I know. I know. Sometimes it can be difficult to check out pronunciation, sure, although sure. not as not as much as previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to tell you, radio is so much harder than writing on uh, <laughs> writing, writing for print. Right. You know, it, it's probably the the number one thing that people complain to us about is that mispronunciations. But I can't tell you. We counted them up. Uh, at least on today on Broadway, we do a hundred to one hundred and fifty names every single day. And so uh, I can't even imagine what it is on uh, this week on Broadway. We we have to talk about two or 300 names every week, and we can't get them all right, but we appreciate it. Another reason why we wish we had Mary Martin back again. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, I loved it. I think uh, I agree about Kristen Milioti. I think she did a superb job. So did William Jackson Harper as her husband. They're the two main characters, but also we must mention that Artie Arthur uh, is voiced by Will Connolly, who also plays uh, another um, very small role in in uh, in a, a separate scene where that in which Artie is not involved. Uh, and I have to say, um, initially I thought, well, I I love this play. I I think my first reaction was that it was going to be very difficult for other people to produce it because Artie. He moves around uh, a lot. Uh, he has, um, you know, his head moves. He, he moves, you know, he sort of rolls along the floor in a similar manner to R2-D2. He has little, um, like, f- sort of like um, f- flippers, like uh, where his hands would be that, that come up uh, at, and go down at se- several points. And then uh, he, you know, he, he responds to it to everything that uh, Anna, Chris Miliati, says, and he has conversations with her. And initially, well, first of all, it it really sounds like the voice is coming from this little robot. Uh, And so I guess the sound design uh, by Brandon Brandon Walcott should be really praised for that. Um, And I don't know, I, I guess I thought initially that all of Artie's responses were recorded, but I'm thinking probably not. I'm thinking maybe that Will Connolly was was doing all of that live off stage, and it was just made to sound uh, like it was coming from that little robot, and that, that it was uh, you know a, uh, a recorded voice. I think so, Michael, because um, <laughs> Artie waited for laughs. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I think that if if they had tried to record the responses, uh, that would have been a, a Herculean task for the operator, just in terms of timing and and it also, you know, n- not to mention the number of cues. Um, so I, I I I'm going to assume that Will Connolly is doing it live, and uh, and he, uh, <laughs> you know, um, does a brilliant job at it. There there are so many. Uh, so many wonderful themes in this sh- show. It's very moving. There's some similar themes to the movie AI. Uh, remember the, the oh. Steven Spielberg movie? Uh, uh, and but- E.T. <laughs> and E.T., yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think that thing about controlled fertility, I, I think we've seen that in, in previous dystopian uh, pieces, uh, movies and, and films uh, and, and plays. But uh, but it's it's dealt with in a, in a in a different way here. And I I I just I loved it. I really I really did. I, I think that um, Zoe Kazan has a has a. Uh, on the basis of this, I think she has a great future. It's not her first play. Did you see, uh, Peter, she did We Live Here uh, that was done at MTC? No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. But um, so it's not her first, but but it, it shows incredible promise. And I can't wait to see what she has up her sleeve next. All right. So that's uh, after the blast at the Claire Tau um, up at Lincoln Center. And it's playing through November 19th. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. So next up... Uh, we have Michael got over to musicals tonight to see bells are ringing at the lion theater. So tell us about that, Michael. Yes. Musicals tonight production, uh, of, (laughs) um, a show that was originally written uh, as a vehicle for Judy holiday by, uh, her friends, Betty Comden and Adolph green with music by Julie Stein. And, uh, 
was written as a vehicle, but I think uh, has a has had a life beyond that because the basic uh, story uh, is is so uh, something that we can all relate to, even though, well, or I should say something we used to all be able to relate to in the days when it was much more common to uh, know someone only as a voice on a telephone and not have any idea what they looked like. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, that's no longer the case so much. And, and you can pretty much, I guess, uh, find a, some kind of photo of almost everyone in the world if you, if you want to. Uh, but this, uh, girl ella peterson works for an answering service and she becomes involved with uh the personal lives of her clients she's very she's a very loving person and she tries to help everyone and uh but she also falls in love uh although she has not met him in person yet with this fellow named jeff moss who's a, a playwright who's struggling and she winds up um becoming very instrumental in his life. Uh, anyway, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen Bells Are Ringing in one form or another, at least the movie. Um, this production, I uh, had some issues with it, uh, directed and choreographed by Casey Colgan, music director and vocal arranger Christopher Stevens. But I did want to say that the um, the chemistry of the two leads, Oakley Boycott is her name as Ella, and Brent Heuser, I suppose that's how it's pronounced, H-E-U-S-E-R as Jeff, was uh, was really off the charts. And uh, and again, as we discussed earlier with um, uh, when talking to Christian Smith about the bridges of Madison County, I think this is a, uh, an example of a case where uh, Bells Are Ringing is a big show, and in some ways the reduction uh, – by musicals tonight, which is a pretty bare bones uh, setup. In some ways, it uh, was not successful. But in terms of intimacy, of the uh, the size of the theater and the proximity of the audience, uh, and the uh, use of natural sound, again, uh, it really can help when you have excellent actors, well cast. Uh, in terms of uh, the in experience in general and also the the chemistry between them and and these two i i just really i felt like i wanted them to get together from from the beginning and when they did at the end i think the audience was really overjoyed with that so bravo to that and once again um i, I remember that peter and i agreed um that the leads uh the two leads or the three leads really of the last show um uh, the apple tree uh, were also excellent uh there there are just there, there are only so many roles to go around in major uh, broadway and off-broadway productions and there are always going to be some extremely talented people uh who are not cast in those for whatever reason and so uh, it's really great that places like musicals tonight and other uh smaller places do these kinds of shows to act as if only to act as showcases for all of these incredible talents i'm going to be um doing a talk back at the end of friday matinee's performance if anybody wants to show up for that um but in oh. case you cannot i will tell you a couple of things that i'm going to mention and that is the fact that um I've always found it a little hard to believe that uh, Jeffrey Moss is somebody who um, Ella Peterson has never seen just from the vantage point that he's a famous part of a playwriting team. And I would think that um, his picture would be in the paper after opening night parties, that type of thing. So I think that Comden and Green would have done better to establish that he's a reclusive playwright. That he mm -hmm. uh, yeah, So that would help a great deal there. The other thing that has always interested me is the fact that in the movie, Dean Martin played the role. Mm. And Dean Martin, who was very much known as a very cantankerous uh, on-the-set actor, would only do one take, all that kind of stuff, made a lot of demands. I'm amazed to this day that in after his first song, which I imagine is not um, – in the uh, stage show, even though it did come into the stage show late in the original Broadway run, what do they do? Do they do do it yourself, or do, do they do um, I'm on my own? Which one do they do, Michael? Oh, uh, on my own. Okay. So um, uh, 
But anyway, he sings a song, Do It Yourself, because he's been part of a playwriting team. They've broken up, and um, and now he's having trouble writing by himself. And at the end of the number, he walks over to the mirror, looks at his reflection in the mirror, and says, what's the use? I'll never make it alone. And the thing is, I'm amazed that Dean Martin would say that because it wasn't that long uh, before mm. he broke up with Jerry Lewis. And at that point in time, everybody expected that Jerry Lewis would turn out to be the star and Dean Martin would be forgotten because indeed Jerry Lewis was uh, the guy who got all the laughs and Dean Martin simply was the straight man. So the prediction at the time was that uh, Dean Martin would fade into obscurity, which did not happen at all. Dean Martin wound up having an extraordinarily successful career in movies by himself, as well as a tremendously popular TV show as time went on. But I'm amazed that he wouldn't say to the writers, I am not saying that line. Uh, it is too close to my own life. Uh-huh. Uh, but there it is for all to see. So that's a couple of the stories I'll be telling Friday afternoon after the matinee of Bells Are Ringing. Hope to see you there. Excellent. All right. So that's over at the Lion Theater, 410 West 42nd Street. Uh, and it's playing through October 29th. So, uh, Peter, the Soho Playhouse does uh, a Fringe Encore series, and you got to see Kafka and Son. Uh, So tell us about that. Well, Kafka and Son uh, is adapted from Kafka's own letters to his father. Uh, Mark Cassidy and Alon Nashman were the ones who did it, but Alon Nashman is the one who is performing it. It's a one-man show, and there he is basically dealing with his father. And the reason I found this of more than moderate interest is not just because uh, the actor is extraordinarily good. And by the way, reminds me a great deal of Gene Wilder. And I don't mean that as an odious comparison, but um, as a tribute, because he, he has um, a good deal of talent as Gene Wilder, of course did. But what we fail to realize is how difficult it is to have a, a father who has accomplished a great deal and uh, to be in a situation where you're not seemingly accomplishing a great deal. And the difficulties of being a son who is totally beaten down by his father, who um, truly believes he'll never amount to anything, is a very difficult thing. And I have found in my long life that uh, Parents who squash their kids' dreams wind up with children who have a much harder time of succeeding because way in the back of their mind, they truly believe their father is right because there was a time early in life, obviously, when they truly believed everything their father said, when father uh, had the last word, when father was essentially the president of their um, country, uh, so to speak. And um, this is about Kafka's overcoming that and having to work very hard to overcome what his father really believed would be his terrible, terrible fate. So I found it very inspiring in that way. And I truly think that anybody who has a parent who doesn't believe in him and her or her should really get over to the so Playhouse and see this because anyone would find it inspiring under those circumstances. And I really hope that if you are in this odious situation of having parents who are not behind you, that you find a way not to listen to them and really follow your dream. Because what I've also learned is that if your parents say, go into business and you go into business, you'll never be good at business because you're not inherently interested in business. At least if you go into what your passion is, you will be inherently interested in, and therefore you'll do better on, um, for, your, uh, for its own sake. So by all means, um, this is the message of Kafka and Son, and that's why I found it extraordinarily valuable. All right. You also got over to the 29th Annual Festival of New Musicals uh, at the National Alliance for Musical Theater. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, the National Alliance of Musical Theater uh, does cuttings of musicals um, that are trying to get on. Some of them have already been produced in um, starting out uh, starter kit venues, if you will. And um, now they're trying to get to the next step. So they come to New York. Uh, 246 were submitted this year, and um, uh, 9, 10, around that number, were were chosen. And um, at New World Stages, you went from stage to stage um, seeing the excerpts. Sometimes they did most of the first act and a little of the second. Sometimes they condensed everything, that type of thing. Now, is it fair for me to review these shows at this point in time? I'm going to say it isn't. 
Um, all I will say is that I didn't see all of them. I saw half of them, and I didn't much like what I saw. But um, I, I feel that um, we're dealing with writers who um, seem to have seen High School Musical and uh, are writing in that style. And uh, while indeed many people have said High School Musical has been good for musical theater because it got people interested in musical theater, yes, to a degree that's true, but I wonder if they really believe this is the template that musical theater should be because I saw a lot of that in these. Nevertheless, 29 years of the um, Festival of New Musicals, God love it. Certainly things have come out of there. The early modern, modern Millie, the drowsy chaperone, probably wouldn't have had the success they had or moved on if indeed they didn't have people coming there and saying, ah, 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 I do see the potential here. You know, this could really work. So um, come from away, too. I mean, a, a lot of them um, certainly don't move on, of course. You know, you can't expect them to. There are only going to be so many winners um, in any given situation. Um, but I'll be surprised if any of the ones I saw turn out to be um, hits along the lines of those three shows that I just mentioned. All right. So uh, before we head on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio. TuneIn also plays us. You can get us on the Google Play Store, uh, the Stitcher app, or anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, will be found at BroadwayRadio.com as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Well, I asked, remember Henrik in A Little Night Music? Tell me why he wouldn't like these songs on their original cast albums. And the songs were Bloody Mary from South Pacific. I've grown accustomed to her face from My Fair Lady. I've got your number from Little Me. One Halloween from Applause. Old Friends from Merrily We Roll Along, and Do It Alone from Parade. And the reason is that all of them have the word damn in them. Now, ain't that too damn bad? Damn, 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 damn. We'll be damned fools a lot. Well, damn you, Daddy. Look at your little girl now. Damn few. And I could start to scream against the, scream against the whole damn South. And you'll recall that after Henrik in the song later says damned in a very different context that he begged our pardon. So that's why he wouldn't be uh, uh, too approving of these songs. So Jeff Valenga was the first to get it, followed by Ed Glazier, Brigadude, Paul Mandel and Ingrid Gammerman. Now, this week's question. What do these musicals have in common? Anastasia, Ernest in Love, Let It Ride, Oh Brother and 17. Hmm. Mm. All right. So if you have an answer to that, uh, email us at triviabroadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. What if I been Fifty years before you in a house on the street where you lived. Maybe I'd be outside as you passed on your bike. Would I know? And in a white sea. I see one pair that I recognize And I know that I am I am I am the lucky
passed away in his sleep And his wife, she stayed for a couple 